Hello, welcome back to the Tea Leaves podcast. I think in historical terms, this may end up being a, a big deal, even though, of course, it's a balloon in this sense. The balloon incident seems to me to have be having a very galvanizing, if not catalytic effect on the U.S.-China relationship. And what I mean is, at one level, the balloon incident for average Americans turned the abstract issue of the China challenge into a very visceral issue. I'm really happy to welcome my good friend and colleague, Dr. Evan Medeiros. Evan, welcome back to Tea Leaves. Thanks, Rexon. Great to be here. I'm going to set aside the long-winded introduction of you that I have in front of me because everyone Please. knows who you are. <laughs> <laughs> my wife will thank you. <laughs> Suffice to say, leading expert on China, having served at high levels in the U.S. government for multiple presidents, and most importantly, a senior advisor here at the Asia Group. Evan, welcome back. I think it's been about 18 months. I've been really excited to chat a little bit over the next 20, 30 minutes about China. Let's just dive right in. Yeah. So there's an issue that's dominated the news over the last few days, and let's just get at it right away here. And that is the big surveillance balloon that China sent floating across the United States. People are probably familiar with the basic facts, some of which I think are probably going to evolve over time. So I want to sort of start, just get your basic take. What do you make of this incident? Well, Rexon, I think in historical terms, this may end up being a, a big deal, even though, of course, it's, it's a balloon in this sense. The balloon incident seems to me to have be having a very galvanizing if not catalytic effect on the U.S.-China relationship. And what I mean is, at one level, the balloon incident for average Americans turned the abstract issue of the China challenge into a very visceral yeah. issue, right? There yeah, are people you're, literally... You're about, about walking your dog, which I love. Right, exactly. Walking your dog, looking up, and there's a Chinese spy balloon up in the sky that Joe Biden had an F-22 shoot down. So it mm -hmm. turns China from an abstract to something tangible. But there's also a sort of galvanizing dimension for China specialists, right? Policy wonks in the sense of, you know, we wonder how in 2023 in Xi Jinping's China did this happen, right? There are at least two obvious explanations. One is that it was deliberate. Yeah. Right? That right. they just decided, hey, We've done this before. We're going to do it again. We're going to get away with it, even though it's on the eve of a very important visit by the Secretary of State. First visit in five years, right? Mm -hmm. During a time when we, China, want to improve the relationship with the U.S. and our image globally. The second explanation is that the right hand and the left hand in China weren't talking to one another, right? Which in Xi Jinping's China in 2023 is equally, if not more, worrisome. The fact that you could have the intelligence establishment in China conducting this kind of operation, right, in U.S. territorial airspace on the eve of Secretary of State's visit. Both explanations equally worrisome, and that's why I think it may have this catalytic effect in the relationship. And you just sort of unpacked really well the Chinese side of the equation, right, and the uncertainties around why did this happen and the implications, none of which are, are good, of, of either of those potential scenarios. Talk a little bit about the U.S. side, which I think is 
equally complex, and this incident has been equally revealing? Well, I think the most immediate impact on the U.S. side is affecting American public perceptions, but also the political debate. It's accelerating the politicization of the China issue in the United States, right? I mean, just turn on the TV, CNN, Fox, whatever channel you choose to watch, and this issue is front and center. Of course, Republicans in the House and the Senate are using it as a way to demonstrate or argue that Joe Biden is weak, you know, needs to be tougher. And now you have the select committee in the House of Representatives that's talking about conducting all sorts of hearings related to this and other issues. So you and I have talked in the past, and I've heard you talk about cyclical dimensions of U.S.-China relations, things that come and go that could impact but aren't lasting. And then there are structural dimensions to the relationship. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly cyclical being the short term trends. The Chinese want to de-risk the relationship, improve ties with the US, perhaps increase opportunities for trade and investment with America. But then the structural features of the relationship being the sources of competition that are expanding and intensifying, whereas the traditional sources of ballast in the relationship are diminishing in influence. Yeah. So we had seemed to be in a bit of a period Thinking back to last fall, the Chinese had their party congress. She solidified his third term. The Chinese move rapidly through COVID, right, over the winter. And they still are, but they seem to be moving right. to get beyond COVID to open up again. And we seem to be headed into a period where there was going to be greater engagement between the U.S. and China, that there was a desire for a, some level of stability do you think that has been entirely disrupted? Would you measure it in weeks, months, many months before Tony has his meeting? Well, well you're right. It was disrupted because that was the plan. The purpose of, of Blinken's visit was to try and put the U.S.-China relationship on a different and better trajectory and to solve yeah. problems. Uh, growing concern in the U.S. about illicit Chinese military assistance to Russia, for example, Right. What's China going to do if North Korea conducts a seven nuclear test? I mean, there were real big pieces of business for Secretary Blinken's visit. So I do think that's been disrupted. And it set off this whole cycle of political and policy debates in the United States about where the U.S.-China relationship is headed. And I do think we're going to measure it in months. I think it's going to be a a few months as the Mm. U.S. works through these political and these policy dynamics until the conditions are set for Blinken to return. But of course, there are other challenges on the horizon. For example, Speaker McCarthy has talked about going to Taiwan, right? Right. If that happens in April or or May, it pushes the timeline for the reboot out even further. Right. My sense, Evan, is that the Speaker is very likely that his plans would be to get to Taiwan sometime in the first half of this year. Yeah, could be. And I've, I've read some reports that perhaps Representative Gallagher's Select Committee on China is thinking of going to Taiwan and holding hearings in Taiwan. I don't know if that is completely verified, but I mean, that would be another one of these actions that would kick out this this timeline of the US and Chinese ability to put the relationship on a more productive pathway. And of course, there is a calendar of events throughout this year of multilateral events. Japanese are hosting the G7 in May, Uh, Of course, you have the U.S. hosting APEC, Indians hosting the G20. So suddenly the calendar becomes pretty truncated. And so, you know, a question may arise as soon as the summer 
is Xi Jinping going to come to San Francisco to attend APEC in November of this year if the relationship remains substantially stressed? Mm -hmm. Can you construct a scenario, Evan, in your mind where the two sides, particularly the I think the U.S. side, shortens this timeline and gets back to a place where they can envision Secretary Blinken going to Beijing within the next six to eight weeks? Hard for me to believe that it could be that quick, absent some major step on the part of the Chinese to signal contrition and to sort of provide, let's call it a diplomatic down payment on the improvement in relations, right? Mm -hmm. We have to see a, a pretty substantial move on the Chinese part on something of consequence to us to signal, yes, the Chinese are prepared. So the question is, what would that down payment be, right? And would it be enough to cross both the policy and the political thresholds necessary for Blinken to go to Beijing in a way that didn't result in net criticism of the administration? Yes. And actually get some things. Yes. Right? He can't go to Beijing and just sort of come away with sort of vague commitments. And final point on this, Rexon, is if the balloon incident did anything, it signaled the importance of developing channels of crisis management, risk management in the relationship with the Chinese have resisted. We've developed them yes. in the past. They reject them. They treat them as conditional and subject to volatility in the relationship. And that's precisely what risk management and crisis management is meant not to be. Yeah, that seems like a tall task and one that's unlikely to occur in it. And it reminds me that to your point earlier, the calendar gets in the way because in March, they have their two sessions period where they will appoint their new government, correct? That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. And and describe the importance of that set against the party Congress for our listeners that occurred last fall. Well, the simplest way to think about it is the, the Chinese party state system has three parts. You've got the party, you've got the government, and you've got the military, right? Of course, the party sits above everything. So the party Congress in the fall was about changes in the party, the new central committee, right? Yeah. The NPC meeting, the meeting coming up in March, that's the National People's Congress, their legislature, will result in changes in government positions. So formally appoint the new premier, the new vice premiers, the new state councilors, and of course, the new ministers. I think that is most consequential, not for the foreign policy and national security side. We pretty much know who the key players are at mm -hmm. this point. You know, former foreign minister Wang Yi is at the Politburo. You've got former U.S. ambassador Ching Gong as the foreign minister, Song Tao at the Taiwan Affairs Office. I think the NPC is going to be most consequential for the economic relationship. Mm. We need to see mm -hmm. sort of the rack and stack of who are going to be the leading economic officials that we're going to have to negotiate with, which will sort of give us a sense of whether or not there's any opening in the aperture for the U.S.-China economic relationship to get back on track. Do you have an expectation at this stage, Evan, on that very point? Yeah, I mean, my expectation is that, broadly speaking, Xi Jinping is going to appoint a bunch of people who are consistent with his long-term trajectory of preferencing state-owned enterprises, industrial policy, state-directed development strategies, because a lot of the people that were traditionally known and experienced in more market-oriented policies were not reappointed to the Central Committee. So right. people like right. Liu He, Guo Xuqing, Yi Gang. So we sort of have to see what the new team, you know, is going to look like, even though the government 
in this year has a very, very pro-growth sort of agenda because the economy, you know, had such a bad year in 2022, right? 3% GDP growth, you know, worst growth figure in probably over 40 years. So I think the Chinese are really looking to lean into their pro-growth strategy for 2023, but it's not clear to me that that will be an enduring strategy and be reflected in the personnel choices at the NPC this March. And how, Evan, would you think about the economic factors you just highlighted and the challenges, right? The, the significant challenges they face and the need for a pro-growth, a growth strategy on the economic side. How does that impact in your mind how they approach geopolitics and the bilateral relationship with the United States? Well, for, for China, the two are intimately related, right? right? Because to pursue a pro-growth strategy, what the Chinese are going to do is try and encourage greater investment into China. So that's both foreign direct investment and portfolio investment. So China is desperately trying to send the signal to international markets, hence their outreach strategy at Davos, sending Liu He, for example, that China is open for business. China is a reliable place to do business. Companies should continue to invest there. Portfolio investors should look at Chinese stocks and bonds as a good place to place their money. And so to pursue that strategy economically, they need to improve their relations with other countries. So that's about stabilizing with the US, improving with European governments, and the same thing in Asia. So the two are, are tandem. It's about improving relations with major economies in the world in order to promote greater investment and trade with China. I mean, that to me, right, the logic of that assessment, Evan, is if you're a U.S. policymaker, U.S. strategist, is we have some leverage. I think we have a substantial amount of leverage. I should put it this way. In a relationship where the U.S. doesn't typically have a lot of leverage, we have a unique moment of leverage. Mm -hmm. Right. And not least because Xi Jinping may be coming to San Francisco to attend APEC. Xi Jinping doesn't want to arrive in the United States and not have a substantial meeting with Joe Biden during a period of tension in the U.S.-China relationship. Yeah. So in an interesting way, you could make the argument that it's in American interest to find a way back to engagement framed correctly, of course, framed carefully in part because of this window, I would argue, maybe a little more than a moment, right? A window of leverage that we may have set inside the context of the diplomatic calendar that Xi Jinping in all likelihood is coming to San Francisco at the end of the year. Right. And, you know, the balloon incident only adds to that because during a period where the Chinese, for multiple reasons, economic reasons, geopolitical, and simply Xi Jinping wants to have a good visit, the U.S. has leverage, then you have this balloon incident, which derails that entire initiative. So the question for American policymakers is, if we have leverage, how do you use it? Correct. And I think that the key is to be able to set the terms for what that process is going to look like. Or... The key is to set the terms for how to improve the relationship, sort of mm -hmm. lay out to the Chinese the actions mm -hmm. that we need to see to put the relationship on a more productive pathway. And that I think that means meaningful changes in behavior related to Chinese assistance to Russia, on North Korea, on counter-narcotics, and a variety of other regional issues. Mm -hmm. We've talked in the past, in our, in our last episode, you highlighted, Evan, the 
critical importance in the U.S. strategy of sequencing in how we engage partners and allies in advance of engaging key adversaries, whether it's China or Russia. I continue to see that as a feature of the Biden administration. But how do you assess our relationships with the key allies and partners in the Asia-Pacific region to start today in the context of U.S.-China relations? I think the administration has played the sequencing game exceptionally well. And I give them credit because it's not an easy game to play, right? It's a long game. It's not a short game. And it's taken a while to build momentum. What we've seen is that momentum has a cumulative dimension to it, Mm -hmm. right? And so most recently, you've seen the Philippines step forward and actually start implementing the 2014 basing agreement, you may recall, that we negotiated in the Obama administration. So you're seeing Japan and the Netherlands came to an agreement with the United States about how to implement the October 22 export controls on semiconductor manufacturing equipment, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're China and you're looking around the world, it looks like a pretty challenging external environment because the U.S. has done a good job of building a series of relationships that play to the U.S. strength. And an added dimension of this is the calendar of multilateral events in 2023 does not play to China's advantage because it Mm -hmm. begins with Japan hosting the G7 in May, India hosting the G20 in September, the Indonesians hosting the ASEAN East Asia Summit meetings, and then, of course, the U.S. hosting APEC. So there's the possibility of a sequence of multilateral meetings in which I think China could face pressure from others about a variety of coercive security or predatory economic behaviors. So in 2023, a challenge for China is how to improve its external environment during a period where there's a lot of momentum in the U.S. strategy and the calendar doesn't favor them. There are, as you said, just an incredible number of events coming up. In addition to the ones that you mentioned, we will have at least, my guess is, two meetings of the Quad this year as well, the United States, Australia, Japan, and India. We'll have the meeting of the AUKUS leaders, Australia, UK, and the United States, likely sometime in March, you know, around the submarine initiative. And my sense is a series of bilateral engagements for Joe Biden here in Washington with some key leaders. I suspect, Evan, we'll have you back on tea leaves sooner than we think, given the pace of events and geopolitics. This has been a great conversation. I think we covered a lot of ground and hopefully kept our listeners engaged. I do want to ask you one last question. Now that you're spending a bit more time in Santiago and learning about Chile, but also just more broadly about Latin America, South America, I'd love to hear your perspective on China in that context of our southern continent. Well, I would say, I mean, look, I'm still learning, having a lot of fascinating conversations. What's clear is that China looms large for many Latin American countries. It's the top trading partner. So China's growth trajectory is going to be incredibly important to them. And what's interesting is, is that China's growth trajectory is very challenged at the moment, both immediately and structurally for the long term. But the other piece of it is Latin American countries just simply have a very different perspective on China than the United States do. They don't have as many layers to the relationship Mm -hmm. as we do. They don't come at it with the sort of historical baggage. But what what I've gathered is there's a strong interest in learning more about China. But I would say that it's largely trade and investment with China that is the dominant 
feature of their relationships and the dominant feature of, of the conversation. But of course, as China becomes more active in a variety of different areas of Latin America, I think that conversation is going to change and evolve. Evan, we'll have to pick up that thread as well the next time you're on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, it's been Rexy. a great conversation. Yeah, great chat. And to our listeners, thank you. Please be sure to rate us or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.